Chapter Twelve of the Iron Heel by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Matt Saw. The Bishop. It was after my marriage that I chanced upon Bishop Morehouse, but I must give the events in their proper sequence. After his outbreak at the IPH convention, the bishop, being a gentle soul, had yielded to the friendly pressure brought to bear upon him, and had gone away on a vacation. But he returned more fixed than ever in his determination to preach the message of the church. To the consternation of his congregation, his first sermon was quite similar to the address he had given before the convention. Again, he said, and at length and with distressing detail, that the church had wandered away from the master's teaching, and that mammon had been instated in the place of Christ. And the result was, willy-nilly, that he was led away to a private sanitarium for mental disease, while in the newspapers appeared pathetic accounts of his mental breakdown and of the saintliness of his character. He was held a prisoner in the sanitarium. I called repeatedly, but was denied access to him, and I was terribly impressed by the tragedy of a sane, normal, saintly man being crushed by the brutal will of society. For the bishop was sane, and pure, and noble. As Ernest said, all that was the matter with him was that he had incorrect notions of biology and sociology, and because of his incorrect notions, he had not gone about it in the right way to rectify matters. What terrified me was the bishop's helplessness. If he persisted in the truth as he saw it, he was doomed to an insane ward, and he could do nothing. His money, his position, his culture could not save him. His views were perilous to society, society could not conceive that such perilous views could be the product of a sane mind, or, at least, it seems to me that such was society's attitude. But the bishop, in spite of the gentleness and purity of his spirit, was possessed of guile. He apprehended clearly his danger. He saw himself caught in the web, and he tried to escape from it. Denied help from his friends, such as father and Ernest and I could have given, he was left to battle for himself alone. And in the enforced solitude of the sanitarium, he recovered. He became again sane. His eyes ceased to see visions. His brain was purged of the fancy that it was the duty of society to feed the master's lambs. As I say, he became well, quite well, and the newspapers and the church people hailed his return with joy. I went once to his church. The sermon was of the same order as the ones he had preached long before his eyes had seen visions. I was disappointed, shocked. Had society then beaten him into submission? Was he a coward? Had he been bulldozed into recanting? Or had the strain been too great for him, and had he meekly surrendered to the juggernaut of the established? I called upon him in his beautiful home. He was woefully changed. He was thinner, and there were lines on his face which I had never seen before. He was manifestly distressed by my coming. He plucked nervously at his sleeve as we talked, and his eyes were restless, fluttering here, there, and everywhere, and refusing to meet mine. His mind seemed preoccupied, and there were strange pauses in his conversation, abrupt changes of topic, and an inconsecutiveness that was bewildering. Could this, then, be the firm, poised, Christ-like man I had known, with pure, limpid eyes and a gaze steady and unfaltering as his soul? He had been manhandled. He had been cowed into subjection. His spirit was too gentle. It had not been mighty enough to face the organized wolf-pack of society. I felt sad unutterably sad. 
He talked ambiguously, and he was so apprehensive of what I might say that I had not the heart to catechize him. He spoke in a faraway manner of his illness, and we talked disjointedly about the church, the alterations in the organ, and about petty charities. And he saw me depart with such evident relief that I should have laughed had not my heart been so full of tears. The poor little hero, if I had only known. He was battling like a giant, and I did not guess it. Alone, all alone, in the midst of millions of his fellow men, he was fighting his fight. Torn by his horror of the asylum and his fidelity to truth and the right, he clung steadfastly to truth and the right. But so alone was he that he did not dare to trust even me. He had learned his lesson well, too well. But I was soon to know. One day the bishop disappeared. He had told nobody that he was going away, and as the days went by and he did not reappear, there was much gossip to the effect that he had committed suicide while temporarily deranged. But this idea was dispelled when it was learned that he had sold all his possessions, his city mansion, his country house at Menlo Park, his paintings and collections, and even his cherished library. It was patent that he had made a clean and secret sweep of everything before he disappeared. This happened during the time when calamity had overtaken us in our own affairs, and it was not till we were well settled in our new home that we had opportunity really to wonder and speculate about the bishop's doings. And then everything was suddenly made clear. Early one evening, while it was yet twilight, I had run across the street and into the butcher's shop to get some chops for Ernest's supper. We called the last meal of the day supper in our new environment. Just at the moment I came out of the butcher's shop, a man emerged from the corner grocery that stood alongside. A queer sense of familiarity made me look again, but the man had turned and was walking rapidly away. There was something about the slope of the shoulders and the fringe of silver hair between coat collar and slouch hat that aroused vague memories. Instead of crossing the street, I hurried after the man. I quickened my pace, trying not to think the thoughts that formed unbidden in my brain. No, it was impossible. It could not be. Not in those faded overalls, too long in the legs and frayed at the bottoms. I paused, laughed at myself, and almost abandoned the chase. But the haunting familiarity of those shoulders and that silver hair. Again I hurried on. As I passed him, I shot a keen look at his face. Then I whirled around abruptly and confronted the bishop. He halted with equal abruptness and gasped. A large paper bag in his right hand fell to the sidewalk. It burst, and about his feet and mine bounced and rolled a flood of potatoes. He looked at me with surprise and alarm. Then he seemed to wilt away. The shoulders drooped with dejection and he uttered a deep sigh. I held up my hand. He shook it, but his hand felt clammy. He cleared his throat in embarrassment, and I could see the sweat starting out on his forehead. It was evident that he was badly frightened. The potatoes, he murmured faintly. They are precious. Between us we picked them up and replaced them in the broken bag, which he now held carefully in the hollow of his arm. I tried to tell him my gladness at meeting him, and that he must come right home with me. "'Father will be rejoiced to see you,' I said. "'We live only a stone's throw away.' "'I can't,' he said. "'I must be going. Good-bye.' He looked apprehensively about him, as though dreading discovery, and made an attempt to walk on. "'Tell me where you live, and I shall call later.' he said, when he saw that I walked beside him, and that it was my intention to stick to him now that he was found. No, I answered firmly. He must come now. He looked at the potatoes spilling on his arm, and at the small parcels on his other arm. Really, it is impossible, he said. Forgive me for my rudeness, if you only knew. He looked as if he were going to break down, but the next moment he had himself in control. 
Besides, this food, he went on, it is a sad case. It is terrible. She is an old woman. I must take it to her at once. She is suffering from want of it. I must go at once. You understand? Then I will return. I promise you. Let me go with you, I volunteered. Is it far? He sighed again and surrendered. Only two blocks, he said. Let us hasten. Under the bishop's guidance I learned something of my own neighborhood. I had not dreamed such wretchedness and misery existed in it. Of course, this was because I did not concern myself with charity. I had become convinced that Ernest was right when he sneered at charity as a poulticing of an ulcer. Remove the ulcer was his remedy. Give to the worker his product. Pension as soldiers those who grow honorably old in their toil, and there will be no need for charity. Convinced of this, I toiled with him at the revolution, and did not exhaust my energy in alleviating the social ills that continuously arose from the injustice of the system. I followed the bishop into a small room, ten by twelve in a rear tenement, and there we found a little old German woman, sixty-four years old, the bishop said. She was surprised at seeing me, but she nodded a pleasant greeting, and went on sewing on the pair of men's trousers in her lap. Beside her, on the floor, was a pile of trousers. The bishop discovered there was neither coal nor kindling, and went out to buy some. I took up a pair of trousers and examined her work. Six cents, lady,' she said, nodding her head gently while she went on stitching. She stitched slowly, but never did she cease from stitching. She seemed mastered by the verb to stitch. "'For all that work?' I asked. "'Is that what they pay? How long does it take you?' "'Yes,' she answered. "'That's what they pay. Six cents for finishing. Two hours sewing on each pair. But the boss doesn't know that.' she added quickly, betraying a fear of getting him into trouble. I'm slow. I've got the rheumatism in my hands. Girls work much faster. They finish in half that time. The boss is kind. He lets me take the work home, now that I'm old and the noise of the machine bothers my head. If it wasn't for his kindness, I'd starve. Yes, those who work in the shop get eight cents. But what can you do? There's not enough work for the young. The old have no chance. Often one pair is all I can get. Sometimes, like today, I am given a pair to finish before night. I asked her the hours she worked, and she said it depended on the season. In the summer, when there is a rush order, I work from five in the morning to nine at night. But in the winter it is too cold. The hands do not early get over the stiffness. Then you must work later, till after midnight sometimes. Yes, it has been a bad summer, the hard times. God must be angry. This is the first work the boss has given me in a week. It is true. One cannot eat much when there is no work. Now I'm used to it. I have sowed all my life, in the old country and here in San Francisco. Thirty-three years. If you're sure of the rent, it is all right. The houseman is very kind, but he must have his rent. It is fair. He only charges three dollars for this room. That is cheap, but it is not easy for you to find all of three dollars every month. She ceased talking, and nodding her head, went on stitching. You have to be very careful as to how you spend your earnings, I suggested. She nodded emphatically. Well, after the rent, it's not so bad. Of course, you can't buy meat, and there's no milk for the coffee. But always there is one meal a day, and often two. She said this last proudly. There was a smack of success in her words. But as she stitched on in silence, I noticed the sadness in her pleasant eyes and the droop of her mouth. The look in her eyes became far away. She rubbed the dimness hastily out of them. It interfered with her stitching. No, it's not the hunger that makes the heart ache, she explained. You get used to being hungry. It's for my child that I cry. It was the machine that killed her. 
It's true she worked hard, but I cannot understand. She was strong, and she was young. Only forty, and she worked only thirty years. She began young, it's true, but my man died. The boiler exploded down at the works, and what were we to do? She was ten, and she was very strong. But the machine killed her. Yes, it did. It killed her, and she was the fastest worker in the shop. I've thought about it often, and I know. That is why I cannot work in the shop. The machine bothers my head. Always I hear it saying, I did it, I did it. And it says that all day long. And then I think of my daughter, and I cannot work. The moistness was in her old eyes again, and she had to wipe it away before she could go on stitching. I heard the bishop stumbling up the stairs, and I opened the door. What a spectacle he was. On his back he carried half a sack of coal with kindling on top. Some of the coal dust had coated his face, and the sweat from his exertions was running in streaks. He dropped his burden in the corner by the stove and wiped his face on a coarse bandana handkerchief. I could scarcely accept the verdict of my senses. The bishop, black as a coal heaver, in a working man's cheap cotton shirt. One button was missing from the throat. And in overalls. That was the most incongruous of all. The overalls, frayed at the bottoms, dragged down at the heels, and held up by a narrow leather belt around the hips such as laborers wear. Though the bishop was warm, the poor swollen hands of the old woman were already cramping with the cold, and before we left her the bishop had built the fire, while I had peeled the potatoes and put them on to boil. I was to learn, as time went by, that there were many cases similar to hers, and many worse, hidden away in the monstrous depths of the tenements in my neighborhood. We got back to find Ernest alarmed by my absence. After the first surprise of greeting was over, the bishop leaned back in his chair, stretched out his overall-covered legs, and actually sighed a comfortable sigh. We were the first of his old friends he had met since his disappearance, he told us, and during the intervening weeks he must have suffered greatly from loneliness. He told us much, though he told us more of the joy he had experienced in doing the master's bidding. For truly now, he said, I am feeding his lambs, and I have learned a great lesson. The soul cannot be ministered to till the stomach is appeased. His lambs must be fed bread and butter and potatoes and meat. After that, and only after that, are their spirits ready for more refined nourishment. He ate heartily of the supper I cooked. Never had he had such an appetite at our table in the old days. We spoke of it, and he said that he had never been so healthy in his life. I walk always now, he said, and a blush was on his cheek at the thought of the time when he rode in his carriage as though it were a sin not lightly to be laid. My health is better for it, he added hastily, and I am very happy, indeed most happy. At last I am a consecrated spirit. And yet there was in his face a permanent pain, the pain of the world that he was now taking to himself. He was seeing life in the raw, and it was a different life from what he had known within the printed books of his library. And you are responsible for all this, young man, he said directly to Ernest. Ernest was embarrassed and awkward. I, I warned you, he faltered. No, no, you misunderstand, the bishop answered. I speak not in reproach, but in gratitude. I have you to thank for showing me my path. You led me from theories about life to life itself. You pulled aside the veils from the social shams. You were light in my darkness, but now I, too, see the light. And I am very happy, only— He hesitated painfully, and in his eyes fear leaped large. Only the persecution. I harm no one. Why will they not let me alone? But it is not that. It is the nature of the persecution. I shouldn't mind if they cut my flesh with stripes, or burned me at the stake, or crucified me head downward. But it is the asylum that frightens me. Think of it, of me, in an asylum for the insane. It is revolting. 
I saw some of the cases at the sanitarium. They were violent. My blood chills when I think of it. And to be imprisoned for the rest of my life amid scenes of screaming madness. No, no, not that. Not that. It was pitiful. His hands shook, his whole body quivered and shrank away from the picture he had conjured. But the next moment he was calm. Forgive me, he said simply. It is my wretched nerves. And if the master's work leads there, so be it. Who am I to complain? I felt like crying aloud as I looked at him. Great bishop, oh hero, God's hero. As the evening wore on, we learned more of his doings. I sold my house, my houses, rather, he said, all my other possessions. I knew I must do it secretly, else they would have taken everything away from me. That would have been terrible. I often marvel these days at the immense quantity of potatoes two or three hundred thousand dollars will buy, or bread, or meat, or coal and kindling. He turned to Ernest. You are right, young man. Labor is dreadfully underpaid. I never did a bit of work in my life except to appeal aesthetically to Pharisees. I thought I was preaching the message, and yet I was worth half a million dollars. I never knew what half a million dollars meant until I realized how much potatoes and bread and butter and meat it could buy. And then I realized something more. I realized that all those potatoes and that bread and butter and meat were mine, and that I had not worked to make them. Then it was clear to me someone else had worked and made them and been robbed of them. And when I came down amongst the poor, I found those who had been robbed, and who were hungry and wretched because they had been robbed. We drew him back to his narrative. And the money? I have it deposited in many different banks under different names. It can never be taken away from me because it can never be found. And it is so good, that money. It buys so much food. I never knew before what money was good for. I wish we could get some of it for the propaganda, Ernest said wistfully. It would do immense good. Do you think so? the bishop said. I do not have much faith in politics. In fact, I am afraid I do not understand politics. Ernest was delicate in such matters. He did not repeat his suggestion, though he knew only too well the sore straits the Socialist Party was in through lack of money. I sleep in cheap lodging houses, the bishop went on, but I am afraid and never stay long in one place. Also, I rent two rooms in working men's houses in different quarters of the city. It is a great extravagance, I know, but it is necessary. I make up for it in part by doing my own cooking, though sometimes I get something to eat in cheap coffee houses, and I have made a discovery. Tamales are very good when the air grows chilly late at night. Note. Tamales. A Mexican dish referred to occasionally in the literature of the times. It is supposed that it was warmly seasoned. No recipe of it has come down to us. Only they are so expensive, but I have discovered a place where I can get three for ten cents. They are not so good as the others, but they are very warming. And so I have at last found my work in the world, thanks to you, young man. It is the master's work. He looked at me, and his eyes twinkled. You caught me feeding his lambs, you know, and of course you will all keep my secret. He spoke carelessly enough, but there was real fear behind the speech. He promised to call upon us again, but a week later we read in the newspaper of the sad case of Bishop Morehouse, who had been committed to the Napa Asylum, and for whom there were still hopes held out. In vain we tried to see him to have his case reconsidered or investigated. Nor could we learn anything about him, except the reiterated statements that slight hopes were still held for his recovery. Christ told the rich young man to sell all he had, Ernest said bitterly. The bishop obeyed Christ's injunction and got locked up in a madhouse. Times have changed since Christ's day. A rich man today who gives all he has to the poor is crazy. 
There is no discussion. Society has spoken. End of chapter 12 Recording by Matt Saw Montreal MattSaw.org